on the board upstairs that's like, what's your favorite Harry Potter ship? Somebody wrote Neville and a sense of self-worth, and I just want to cry. Wreck.me. Listeners, for reference, we are getting finally, to finally the big important episode. This feels like a season finale type thing. It's only, not even. It's like um, but today we're finally talking about the Stonewall riots themselves, which is pretty exciting. Shit's going down. Um, so from what we've mentioned about the riots before, you've talked about the fact that this was not an isolated event, and there no. were other riots in other places. Mm-hmm. So can we set this sort of in a history of riots that happened nearby? Um, yeah, so actually that was kind of like one of the big questions I had when I was researching because, like, why Stonewall? Why, you know, if there are other riots that are happening, if there are other movements that are happening, like the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Bilitis, like, why is Stonewall considered the catalyst? Um, and I think this actually ties into the organized crime bit. Um, Ooh. Oh my. That we've, we've briefly mentioned and kind of wondered about, but I, like, finally have a lot of, like, good material for that. Stonewall is this bar in Greenwich Village in New York City. Um, So it's located like in the heart of Manhattan, in a big city where there's like a lot of news coming out of. So it becomes this very like big event that gets reported across the country in papers because of its location. Mm. And then there have been bar raids like the week before at other popular gay bars like the Checkerboard which ends up catalyzing some of this because people are upset about that. I can kind of go back and review some of the other stuff that was going on. I don't know if that would help people. Yeah, that would be totally cool. I Um, think, like, some context. I feel like the sense that I have of the Stonewall riots is, like, there was nothing, there was nothing, and then suddenly there was a riot, and then everything happened. There was nothing, and then there was everything. Exactly. It feels a little bit like the Big Bang of queer history. It kind of does. Yeah. And I think, like, that's not necessarily accurate. In some ways, it very much is, because it's it's definitely the straw that broke the camel's back, but it's not like there was nothing and then there was everything. So um, to set the stage, we talked last episode about the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, which was established by Magnus Hirschfeld in Germany in the late 19th century, basically like a very like socialist leftist workers movement that was focused on LGBT rights, obviously stamped out by the rise of fascism and Nazism in Germany. But after the SHC, there were a couple of societies in the US. World War II involved a lot of displacement of young vets and young people um, to larger cities. And so you moved out of like, you know, your small farm town where you were the only queer person and into this very big town or city where, you know, there were a lot of you and all of a sudden like people were realizing they weren't alone. So there was that, there was, the Mattachine Society, which was established in 1950, and just was basically trying to kind of start a movement, but had a lot of internal issues and didn't really get that far, and eventually kind of had a hostile takeover from inside and fell apart. But it was kind of a secret subversive society. Most people came from communist and anti-capitalist organizing backgrounds, and they were very interested in, like, doing something, not just, like, providing a space for people to meet other gay people, but, like, taking action 
which is kind of contrasted with the Daughters of Bilitis, which was very much like the lesbian society. And part of their objective was to provide a space for women so that they could like meet other women without having to go to bars and like basically become a safer space for gay women to meet other gay women and interact with each other and other legal rights and learn basically. But those are kind of the two big societies that ended up having national chapters. And they come back in this episode, and it's great. Oh, good. Um, oh, I always love hearing more about the Daughters of Bilitis. Oh, God, I want to do a whole episode on them. They sound so dramatic. Just Bilitis as a name. like. But yeah, so they ended up sort of working together. Um, the Daughters of Bilitis used to have these like coffee chats, and they would have... They invited a couple of guys from the Manachine Society over and kind of put them in the hot seat. They were responsible for really bridging the gap between the two societies by inviting the gay men in. There was Dr. Hooker's uh, landmark psychology study trying to uh, destigmatize queerness and stop having it treated as a mental illness. She was studying like normal gay men through one of the first major grants from the National Institutes of Mental Health, mm-hmm. which is kind of a big deal, using projective personality tests, like basically like a lot of standard psychological testing materials to prove that gay men were essentially normal. There were magazines and pamphlets that were distributed subversively that led to the Supreme Court case we were talking about last time, which again, like, that's a whole other episode because that's really... I would love to just talk about the Supreme Court cases that have been involved with the gay rights movement. Like, Oh, that would be really fun. Because there's, you know, there's this one, there's the one in 2012 that overturned parts of DOMA, there's the one over Felvey Hodge, like, and then there were, like, a lot of books and and novels that actually like sort of heavily tend to feature lesbians um in terms of talking about like the well of loneliness the price of salt um those are both about lesbians huh uh i've never heard about yeah well again this i think this goes back into the idea that like lesbianism wasn't a real thing like because women weren't considered to have a quote sexual impulse according to freud which is bullshit but (laughs) (sighs) but anyway yeah so that's kind of a summary of last episode. So then you get to Stonewall, and shit goes down. Good, good. Can we hear a little bit about Stonewall as a bar and as a gathering place before it became the site of a riot? Yeah. Um. So I'm really, I really would love to attach some pictures to this episode because I think they'll illustrate it a lot better. Oh, definitely. Um. But it's basically this bar in Greenwich Village. Um, whitewash walls. And you go inside and there's a jukebox and a cigarette vending machine and like certain groups of people would like cluster around these particular spots. So like (laughs) all the drag queens used to stand by the jukebox. But it's this kind of seedy bar that's run by the mafia and it's in Greenwich Village and it's where you go on Saturday nights to basically be gay and be able to be gay openly and not risk being arrested. Because the bar was owned by the mafia and the mafia were paying off the police not to raid the bar on weekend nights mm. because this was a profit venture for them um not for any like particular homosexual interest but just because like they didn't really give a shit about the law and they could make a lot of money doing this so it's like a very seedy bar and a lot of people in the documentary i was reading the transcript of from pbs people were talking about how like no you like don't set foot in the stonewall bar it's like real germy like it's the kind of place where like some people describe it as like the sort of place where you like walk in and you immediately get hepatitis, which is not possible. I just but want to like, assure people. No, but it has that like gross feel to a it. A little bit gross, a little bit sketchy. Um, there was Stonewall beer and like 
you didn't really know what went into that. Mm. Um, so definitely like a sketchy place, but a place that had been established as safe and as free from persecution. Yeah, I guess that's kind of like a description of the aesthetic of the Stonewall yeah, Bar. Yeah, no, no, that's good. Pre-raid. We've got like a setting now. <laughs> the setting. I don't think it's on Christopher Street, but it's like very close to Christopher Street in New York City, which was where all the like gay prostitutes used to hang out. Um, and that's where like police would dress up in drag and in plain clothes and like basically arrest people for trying to solicit gay sex. Hmm. Um, yeah. Ooh. So the village was like super, super gay, um, but very much subversively so and very much the like subversive kind of gay that was demonized by society because it was a lot of sex workers. Mm. So Stonewall Bar was populated largely by sex workers and street kids and like people of like lower rungs in society, although like demonizing sex workers is like, ugh. But these were like not your posh, well-dressed gay men. They were not posh, well-dressed gay men. They were not the kind of like gay men you think of as living in New York today. They were like very much on the bottom of the social hierarchy. They were very much victimized and vindicated and just generally demonized and made to seem like they were just like slavish, terrible people who had no morals and yada yada yada. So these are the kinds of people that are hanging out in the village and going to Stonewall, but Stonewall also like had a very like cross socioeconomic clientele because you had people like there's this quote uh that a lot of people have in their articles like, you know, we had a medievalist, like somebody who was like an academic scholar who was showing up at Stonewall. And so you would have these like middle upper class academic gays. So there's this mix of racial and class divides that are all congregating at Stonewall in this like seedy ass bar. Good. Um, Good. So the riot itself, do you mind if we chat about a bit? Oh, yes. Oh, lovely. What do you most want to know about first? I have four pages of notes. Oh, good. <laughs> I think a good timeline of events, like what actually happened, would be awesome. So I've heard both that it's a two-day riot and a four-day riot, but according to the documentary transcript I read, it sounds much more like a two-day riot. But it starts at 1 a.m. on June 28th, 1969, and the police raided the Stonewall Bar, which they shouldn't have. You know, there was no precedent for it. Mm -hmm. The mafia was paying the police off so that they would only raid these bars on weeknights in the evening, like early evening, so that mm -hmm. there weren't clientele there. And so the police ostensibly raid the bar because it's serving liquor without a license. But, like, really what they're going for is arresting gays. Although, technically, they were serving liquor without a license because it was a mafia-run <laughs> bar. Good. So, technically, they weren't wrong. So they're serving liquor without a license, and they begin arresting customers at the Stonewall Bar. Which is kind of problematic because, like I said, there were these, there was definitely like a lot of integration of different people from different racial backgrounds. So like there was like a heavy population of like racial minority people who were customers at the Stonewall Bar, people like Sylvia Rivera, for instance. They were particularly vulnerable to this like homophobic and transphobic discourse, but also like the racist discourse that got put on top of that. And mm -hmm. so they were very much expected to like sit in silence and just be really compliant and like that definitely extended to all the patrons but like also very much particularly to the racial minorities who were expected to like do this not only as queer people but as people who were not white as well which adds this whole element of like institutionalized racism and police brutality and structural violence on racial axes which is just oh man 
So the police come in with, uh, they call them paddy wagons, but it's basically where you can, like, take, you know, six or eight people that you've just arrested, and instead of shoving them in, like, four different police cars, you put them all in one wagon. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's the kind of, like, stereotypical image you see of, like, a a truck, basically, with people sitting inside and bars on the back window. Yeah, it's really dehumanizing. Um, So the police show up. There's only, like, six of them, um, including this one guy named Seymour Pine, who later ends up becoming a pretty big ally and advocate, um, Mm. which is, like, a kind of cool, like, arc. He's a good character. Yeah, he's actually one of the people who's, like, really heavily featured in the PBS documentary um, as a member of the police force who was there on the night of the Stonewall riots, but also as, like, a person who ended up becoming a big advocate um, Mm. for the liberation movement, which is kind of cool. And so he's one of the people who shows up. There's, like, five other guys. The sixth precinct, which is the precinct that the Stonewall is in, is, like, has not been warned that they're going to have this raid. Um, the mafia has not been alerted that they're going to have this raid. So, like, nobody's aware that this is supposed to happen. And the six guys who show up are kind of like, well, we can call the sixth precinct for backup. But we'll, we'll be fine. Like, there's six of us. They're just, they're going to be compliant. We'll get the arrests done. It'll be great. Good for us. That did not go that way. <laughs> just in case, like, that wasn't abundantly clear. Um, so these six... Six police officers show up and they start arresting people. And then you have people who are basically Sylvia Rivera and Storme starting to fight back and starting to really like push against the police arrests and the brutality. And like, you know, they'd put them in the paddy wagons and then they would get back out again. Um, And somebody recalls like people throwing copper pennies at the police officers, like coppers. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, oh. a sort of like derogatory name for cops and like basically just like refusing to take the cops shit which is super cool so the NYPD end up locking themselves inside the bar and this is like still the six guys so they lock themselves inside Stonewall with some of the patrons that people had been arrested but basically they're kind of like alright we need backups so we're going to lock ourselves inside the bar lock most of the people outside and call for backup but they have plywood over the windows of the Stonewall Bar because, you know, they're trying not to, like, let people from the outside see that there are gay people in there. Mm-hmm. But the some of them have holes in them, so people start, to, like, throwing matches through the holes from the outside, and, like, hundreds of people are fi- are starting to, like, congregate outside of the bar. Um, and there's actually a group of three or four people who removed a parking meter from the sidewalk <laughs> and used it as a battering ram. <laughs> I mean, basically, it sounds like this was sort of, it, to them, must have felt like a bit of a hostage situation. Yeah. There were it, people in, still in inside of that bar. Yeah. And they could not see what was going on. Yeah. So they're, like, they're starting small fires inside the bar with, like, gasoline and lit matches. And basically, like, the cops are kind of like, holy shit, we need backup. So they call for backup, but the, the people outside the bar are, like, cutting off the police radio contact. So it takes them forever to get backup. And when they do, they finally get, like, five trucks of police officers in full tactical gear. So, like, honestly, like, really reminiscent of a lot of the stuff we've seen at, like, Standing Rock and a lot of the protests against police violence against, like, Black people, like, unnecessarily decked out police officers. I'm just sort of, like, picturing a lot of the imagery that came out of Ferguson. Yeah, like, just look who's dressed for a riot Unarmed crowds and then people who look like soldiers. Yeah, they look like they're dressed for a riot. And so these police officers come out of the trucks in, like, full tactical gear. I keep envisioning them as, like, almost like a SWAT team. Mm. So they show up. There's five trucks of these people. And basically, 
Seymour Pye and the one police officer is trying to like keep all the cops inside the bar from shooting like anything with their guns because he knows that like you know once they shoot all hell is going to break loose but then the five trucks show up there's this one drag queen who keeps getting mentioned in the documentary her name's miss new orleans mm-hmm. and i just like i want to know who she was but anyway she and like a bunch of other drag queens started basically moving forward and the thing is like the terminology here gets a little complicated like i don't know whether to call them drag queens or trans women or like because i think a lot of that got very much conflated in those days Mm. but they're all being referred to in the literature as queens so i'm kind of going with that even if it's not necessarily the term we would use today it's the term they used to describe themselves 50 years ago and that's the important part is like this is the term they were owning so like that's the term i'm gonna use so miss new orleans and a bunch of other queens became a wall and started moving towards the police who were all in tactical gear. And the police started moving backwards because they were like, oh, shit. And so there was this big shift in the air for a chance to fight back. And so people started just, like, fighting back against the police. And this continues everything into the second night. And they're, like, starting small fires and and there were tires that got slashed on paddy wagons and just generally a lot of, like, anger that finally kind of burst forth from this dam and was directed at the police. So <laughs> there's one guy who was there who who has this comment in the documentary. His name is Jerry Hoos. And he says, I mean, the riot squad was used to riots. They were not used to a bunch of drag queens doing a rockets kick line and sort of like giving them all the finger in a way. And they were just like, they were doing these bizarre things, like just high kicks and like singing songs and just generally being like loud and unapologetically like queer drag queens and the riot police were just like what the fuck is going on they didn't know how to respond yeah yeah and so then like over the course of the day when this was all going on like the black panthers showed up the anti-war supporters showed up so basically like a bunch of really radical leftist groups like came to support the riot through the second night and it's just like after it ended and kind of like everything sort of petered out and people like got exhausted and went home and the police finally like just pulled out and were like, okay, we're not dealing with this. Um, but basically like people were still like really energized and really amped up. So <laughs> this is when the daughters of Bilitis come back in. Oh, good. Um, her name is Martha Sewell or something, I think. I, I need to double check this because um, she's actually shown up before in some of my research. But she's the president of the Daughters of Bilitis New York City chapter. And she basically ends up contacting the president of the Mattachine Society, who's uh, Dick Leitch, and was kind of like, we need to have a protest march. Good. And so that's how the pride parades began, too. Um, as a celebration of of the Stonewall riot and the protest march that subsequently happened afterward. And I think actually the first protest march was the first Pride Parade. But yeah. Good. So Pride Parades began, they look a lot and feel a lot like protest marches because the first one was a was protest march. The protest march in reaction yeah. to the Stonewall riot. And it, it's sort of like, I think it's definitely like with the commercialization and the acceptance, quote unquote, of gay people it's definitely become more of a celebration but like i my understanding is that in the south especially like pride parades are still very much more of a protest march that's kind of the arc of the history 
Um, we definitely still have the mafia to talk about because they're so cool. Oh, good. Um, let's d- yeah, let's definitely get into that mafia involvement bit. Yeah. Since the queers and the mafia are, when I came into this project, I did not know that they were at all related. And apparently they have a long history. You just got to wonder, like, was somebody high up in the mob like a little gay? Do you think it was like all just profit motivated because they needed to work know. outside of the law and that's what the mafia is good at? Or do you think it was like... That's the thing I really want to deconstruct is like, you know, at what point was this motivated by profit? And at what point was this motivated by sympathy? Mm-hmm. And and not sympathy in, the, in pity, but sympathy is in like, you know, we, somebody up there in the mob, some boss saw that what was happening was wrong and had the power to combat it. Yeah. And I just like, I don't know. I think there's... There's something particularly interesting about deconstructing the moral compasses of the mafia as a whole. Mm. And, like, because clearly, like, the moral compass of organized crime is very different from, like, mainstream society's moral compass. Like, people in organized crime, like, especially in the mafia in the 60s, which was, like, basically running the city of New York. Mm -hmm. Like, they just, they were, like, totally cool with just, like, you got to get rid of this guy, you get rid of the guy. And there's, like, I think there's a lot of family loyalty, um, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that comes in part from the fact that, like, you know, the mob in New York, I think, was largely Italian, whereas the mob in Boston was largely Irish. There might have been multiple. I don't really know. There was a Chinese mob in San Francisco, it turns out. I had no idea about that. I don't know how much the the familial structure of those cultures initially plays into the ties in the mob, but um, Mm. organized crime. Basically, we're in New York in the 60s. There was a lot of corruption. This is how they were able to pay off the police. And, you know, this is coming from, like, the 20s and Prohibition and alcohol bootlegging. Of course. So this is, like, a pretty, like, established crime syndicate. People knew how to do this. They'd done it before. Yeah. Like, this wasn't, this was, like, a very old kettle of fish. I just mixed metaphors there. This is a very old kettle of fish. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically, there are a couple of laws that I guess we could start out with to kind of, like, contextualize the legal situation here before we get into the organized crime part. Of course. Um, namely, the three articles law, which required you to have three articles of clothing of your gender. To, you were required to be wearing those at any given time, which, like, socks didn't count. So that definitely very much targets primarily, like, queens and trans women, because, like, if you're wearing a dress, it's a little hard to wear, like, men's pants. Exactly. So that, like, very much targeted trans and gender nonconforming people, but, like, especially, I think, queens and butch lesbians, um, just because of, like, the way that ends up working. So, like, if you're, you know, you're, you're a butch lesbian in a suit, like, that's a violation of the law, unless you have three articles of women's clothing. Socks don't count. I just wonder how many people combated this by just wearing, like, three pairs of underwear. I think they did in some ways. Good. I think I think there are definitely cases where they were just like wearing three pairs of underwear. That's just so dumb and specific. <laughs> it is though. That's the thing. I, I don't know if it had to be like three different articles of women's clothing or men's clothing or whatever. But yeah, like people were kind of like, okay, well, what do we do? We have you know, you get the underwear, the undershirt. Like after that, what comes next? So like, there were definitely like creative ways of getting around this. Either like bringing extra clothes so that if you got raided, like you had extra clothes, you could just put on and then Mm. you couldn't get arrested for that basically like 
it's this very like weird archaic kind of draconian law Mm -hmm. um like technically by that law if you go outside barefoot in a sundress you are breaking the law for gender reasons yeah which is kind of but like obviously like that was not a problem if you were a cis woman exactly was absolutely designed to target trans people and then there was the issue of entrapment which meant basically cops would like hang out in the walls of bathrooms and um, dress in dragon plain clothes, and they would basically like use these sort of deceptive means to make arrests mm-hmm. of gay people for soliciting, for loitering, for homosexual acts. They were like pretty devious about it. Um, they were like basically hiding in the walls of men's restrooms and listening, and like trying to catch people in the act of going into the men's restroom to have gay sex. Just so sketchy. That's wow. Wow. Just really, really, like, uncomfortable. Not to mention, like, very, very, like, morally questionable. And, yeah, but it was, like, that was, like, a, a not only was that legal, that was, like, permissible because it allowed you to catch homosexuals. And I feel like that shouldn't be a thing that was particularly effective either. Oh, but it was because you could go into a men's restroom and you could have sex and therefore then you were guaranteed at least a little bit of privacy in the Mm. stall. True, true. And so people would like, cops would hide out in stalls and just like wait and arrest guys when they came in and started having sex. Which like the level of voyeurism in that alone is just like, oh God. Like you have to wonder what it's like to be the cop with that as your job. Were they gay? Maybe. Yeah, so then there was also the issue, um, and this is a quote from uh, Dick Leitch, who was the president of the Mattachine Society in New York, um, and he said, uh, the New York State Liquor Authority had a rule that, that one known homosexual at a licensed premise made that place disorderly, so nobody would set up a place where we could meet because they were afraid that the cops would come in to close it, and that's how the mafia got into the gay bar business. Mm. Um, no matter what, they were going to be illegal. Yeah. So they might as well work with the people who were really good at being illegal. And it's not even a question of working with the people. I think it's kind of like, I mean, the mafia was able to pay off the cops. Mm. And so, especially if you have people with ties to the mafia, and I'm wondering if that was part of the case as well. Like, if you propose this as a lucrative business adventure, which for the mafia was very much a lucrative business venture, like, there's not a lot in it for them to lose in some ways. True, true. Yeah, and so then, I guess, like, just real quick, some statistics. On average, 500 people were arrested for crimes against nature, aka homosexual acts, and three to 5,000 for acts of loitering and solicitation every year in New York City during, like, this era of time. This was, like, all, like, specifically targeting gay people. <laughs> I don't even have words right now. Yeah. That's, wow. Absurd. That's and terrifying. Because if you've ever read Stone Butch Blues, it's not a good time what they do to you when you're arrested. I actually haven't read it yet. Uh, but yeah. Um, so basically, like, there's some laws, there's some background for you. So the mafia gets into the gay bar business. And this is a profitable venture for them because they're supplying the liquor. Mm-hmm. They're supplying the cigarette machines. They're supplying the jukeboxes. So really all they have to do is, like, pay for the premise. Yeah, their um, biggest, and it sounds like the premise was really seedy, so their biggest expense was bribes. Yeah, yeah, basically. Um, But they were basically getting this liquor from, like, stealing it from trucks. 
Um, so they were bootlegging the liquor and then watering it down and selling it at like twice the price and basically like making a profit off of this. Um, so they operated a bunch of gay bars, including the Stonewall. And so they didn't have a liquor license because it's the mafia. They're not going to apply to the city of New York for a liquor license. <laughs> <laughs> that would be like inviting the police into their organized crime syndicate. And um, so they ended up paying off the cops to keep them from shutting down the bars and paying them off to keep them from raiding the bars at peak hours, including 1 a.m. on a weekend night. Mm -hmm. So when they were paying off the police, the police weren't supposed to come at 1 a.m. on June 28th, but they did. And that's why it became such an issue, because... Like, this was supposed to be a safe time of night to go to the Stonewall Bar. It was supposed to be, like, safe, and you were going to be, you weren't going to be arrested, and the mafia was going to, like, keep the police away, and it didn't end up happening. Mm. Basically, organized crime and gay people have a long and centrally entwined history, which is fascinating. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like it's really not a thing that people talk about. Well, yeah, but like no one wants, to, I think, to link gay people with organized crime because I think it very much would detract from the idea that like we're just like you. True, true. And I think gay people in general, we talked about this a lot in the first episode, but are really into, or at least a certain subset are really into this whole assimilation bit. Yeah. And the we're just like you narrative. Mm-hmm. Do you think it was intentional, or do you think it was just six officers who thought they could make a lot of arrests one night? I think it was six officers who thought they could make a lot of arrests one night. Seymour Pine is listed as being from the, quote, morals division. So I think it was a question of, like, people who thought they could make a lot of arrests in one night. And I don't know. I don't really understand how paying off the cops works in the mafia. Um, <laughs> except that I feel like somebody's somebody's head is on the line there. Or fingers or other part of the body but yeah i think it was a couple of guys who thought they could make some arrests and got way more than what they bargained for indeed there was just a lot of police antagonization which hadn't really been the case beforehand mm. um and a lot of just like like verbal antagonization which i think we've seen in the sylvia rivera episode and physical antagonization in terms of fighting back and re refusing to sort of like be complacent and limpid and put in the paddy wagons um i think a sense of just like we're really fed up mm. and this is a time when there's a lot of corruption in new york city in general and there's a big issue with that and like if you've watched the get down at all on netflix like that takes place i think like the summer after the summer of 1970 um and there's a lot of like discussion of the corruption that's going on in the city and the way politics gets done at the sort of like semi-local level mm. um and that how people get their plans through is often by bribery or promising votes or promising, like, tit for tat, basically. Of course. Um, the gross parts of politics. The gross parts of politics. The parts of the sausage you don't want to know about. <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's... That's the thing. Yeah. The only other question I had was, how did this become a movement? But it seems like we've kind of talked about that. Yeah. There was a lot of, from what I gather, a energy. lot of energy. That energy became... The first pride parade mm -hmm. and it spiraled from, spiraled there. from there yeah um, um and i think also the formation of the gay liberation front and the gay activists alliance uh gaa um which were two of the like first things that were founded in the wake of stonewall and we definitely talk about on the, that on the sylvia rivera episode because one of the biggest issues that they have historically had is 
this exclusion of trans people from their fight because it's like a we'll come back for you and b you don't fit the acceptable narrative of like how we want to portray ourselves and this has been a historical problem we talked about this with the manachine society as well it's like what are we going to do about the drag queens Mm. and so i guess like that's one of the biggest issues that comes out of stonewall is that everything afterwards started to drift towards having this queer white male face that was much more socially acceptable while a lot of the work was being done by people like Silvio Rivera. Yeah, pretty much. Um, And I think, you know, I think that contributes a lot to the whole discussions we've been having around this election of, like, why did all of these white people end up voting for Trump even though they're, like, poor or, like, lower class? It's because they value their whiteness more than they value their class status. And they Mm -hmm. value preserving basically their whiteness over that. And, um, worrying about having it invaded and that even just goes back to the slavery era and it's like well we're poor but at least we're white so i think this is very much tied up into all of that too and the outcome and the aftermath of stonewall is like why aren't these people being recognized for their like emotional and physical labor honestly Hmm. yeah no that makes a lot of sense and i think this also has a lot to say about protests too Mm -hmm. there have been just a huge rash of protests recently regarding trump regarding the dakota access pipeline regarding everything and i've heard a lot of talk on this campus especially about you know what are they doing like is there a point to protests and i think there's been a consensus in the people around me that protests are just anger that's not direct anywhere and doesn't do anything but i feel like this kind of shows that that's not at all the case it yeah. takes that anger and it puts it in one centralized place mm-hmm. and it it's the thing that starts other things yeah i think it's and protesting in some ways is less about getting stuff done and more about visibility and like making yourself heard um and letting people know that there is an issue and there is a problem and that we are protesting this problem even if we're not like even if what we're doing right now is marching in the streets and not you know forcing a city council bill through but like there are people doing that as well Exactly. Um, And that was one of the big things with the GAAs and the GLF, Mm. Gay Liberation Front, is that they were, like, basically working with Greenwich Village and the city of New York to try and pass bills that would have helped gay people basically, like, avoid arrest for Mm. absurd laws like the three pieces of clothing rule. Again, as we talked about in Sylvia Rivera, and I don't want to, like, spoil too much of that episode. It's coming up soon, and it's pretty great. But, like, these laws often didn't include language for trans people and genderqueer people and people who like didn't fit the binary narrative of like strict homosexuality mm. um all right any closing thoughts things that you haven't mentioned yet that you would like to i don't know i just one thing i was really mad about with the pbs documentary is that everybody featured in the preview because you have to purchase the documentary access mm. um which i didn't do I read the transcript, but everybody featured in the preview was white, mm. or at least like white passing. Yeah. Um, and most of them were men. And I was just kind of like, stop perpetuating the narrative that these are the people who like were most active and like the catalysts for this riot. Because we know who the catalysts were. It was Sylvia Rivera. It was Marsha P. Johnson. It was Miss Major. Like, these were the people who were fighting back the hardest. And I think it's absolutely ridiculous that somebody who's like, that a group who's basically as nonpartisan and is like generally good as generally PBS. Generally good at news as PBS is like ignoring this. And I think there's a certain 
reason for that and i think that reason is this documentary was made after a lot of these people were too old or had died but why are they all white men and like there's definitely some women in there but i and i don't know you know if there are any people of color in there because i had to read a transcript but i just really want to know yeah I mean, it's definitely a long-term issue that's still yeah. continuing today. And the problem is, I think, you know, the biggest issue is that we are losing these voices. Um, because, you know, it's been almost 50 years. It's going to be 50 years in 2019. Like, that's a long time. Exactly. And everything that isn't archived is lost. I don't know. That's not really a thought I want to close on in some ways, that frustration. But I think, like, reading this transcript and doing the research for this episode and for the last one is just very much, like spawned a further things i want to talk about and b mm. like there's so much i didn't know about what happened before and i think i was very much in the same camp as you where it was kind of like there was nothing and then there was everything and it's kind of cool to realize that there wasn't just nothing and then everything but that it was very much a progressive build-up over time and that like there are people who have been involved in this stuff from you know, the 1940s to well after Stonewall, who were, like, very important, but generally aren't talked about in the narratives, especially, like, even in the narratives that, like, heavily try to, like, focus and preserve voices that have been erased, like Sylvia Rivera and stuff, like, there are even beyond that, there are other people who have been really, really valuable and important in carrying on this legacy of the Stonewall riot, and I'm talking, like, you know, like Martha, but like her, the the president of the Daughters of Bilitis and the president of the Mattachine Society who, you know, made really important contributions and aren't necessarily discussed at, outside of like academic-ish texts because that's really where I've encountered their names is like in the reading I've been doing. Exactly. The more public-facing version of it is becoming whitewashed and is becoming sort of... Yeah. And I think, you know, like these two presidents, I'm pretty sure they were both white, but know that that necessarily needs to like push them into the background in some ways um, because and I guess this is the frustrating part is like you know what about the people who are white who like need their stories to be told in you know a narrative that is increasingly becoming whitewashed I mean if we true, talk about true. the movie and stuff like ah yes for those who are unaware there was a movie neither of us have seen it it features a main character who's a white gay guy it's a coming of age in the time of stonewall and you just cry inside a little bit that just does a really poor job of addressing who was actually there yeah. and the real stories and lives of the real people involved and instead centers the narrative on a fictional white guy because <laughs> you know we can all relate to him <laughs> Again, like, none of these thoughts are really, like, nice I know, closing like, I and inspiring thoughts. I want a nice, thoughts. like, thing to end on. But I just, sometimes maybe, like, there isn't that. I think well, sometimes, like, you know, yeah. Stonewall was an act of, I think, frustration and rebellion. And so maybe the reason that we can't seem to find, like, a nice, cheerful, optimistic close is, like, it, that frustration and that sense of rebellion still exists. True. There's no real way to close out of that in a Stonewall episode because so much has changed, but so much is still the same. This isn't an episode that ends on a, like, happy, closed resolution. And I think that's really important. Because yeah. this story has yet to end on a happy, closed resolution. There, I don't know that there is ever going to be a happy, closed resolution in our lifetime. You know, and I think Stonewall, this episode very much ends on a to-be-continued. And, like, that's what the narrative is at the time. is like, okay, what now? What comes next to be continued? 
the important part was what happened next. Yeah. On that Our note. style. I'm Aubrey. I'm Kit. And this has, has been, been Quilt Bag History. We here at Quilt Bag History would like to thank Elise Brown for our wonderful intro and outro music, which you should be hearing right now. Kit Mitchell, our creative mastermind and entire research team. And Avril Angle, Genevieve Wong, and myself, Aubrey Simonson, as our editing team. 